Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. And we also invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, and please leave reviews as well. This the show where we talk people in politics, around politics, covering politics, talking about politics, about nothing political whatsoever, and only about music and our, our guests' uh, chosen band or artist. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff. I wish I could say I was feeling better, but I'm feeling pretty grim. You know, I'm sitting here looking at this, this sunset. It's a sundown on a dazzling day. It's like gold through my eyes. But you know what, Scott? My eyes turned within only see starless and Bible black. <laughs> <laughs> you can find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. And we welcome in our guest for this program. He is a political writer for The Washington Post. Of course, find his work at WashingtonPost.com. He is the writer of the new election newsletter at The Washington Post called The Trailer and the author of the recent book, The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Progressive Rock. You can find him on Twitter at Dave Weigel. He's Dave Weigel. Dave, thank you for joining us here on the show. Oh, it's good to be here. This is my favorite band. Uh, this is one of the top podcasts in the country, I'm told. I haven't really Googled it. I assume it is. <laughs> this is it's like Serial and you guys, right? That, that's my understanding. I haven't yeah. talked to Charlie about download numbers, but my feeling is we're, <laughs> we're going to be pretty close. Uh, before we get to the band, which is your favorite band, we find out a little bit more about our guest. And we asked Dave Weigel, how did you fall into this political ecosystem and where you are currently? It's a big question. I, I mean, I've always been interested in politics and I've been interested in music uh, and to a lesser extent movies. I'm one of these people who only kind of got into sports in my 30s, which is fairly late. I, I think it's partly I came from a, a family of fairly introverted, nerdy people who also didn't like going out to things. <laughs> so staying at home, reading and listening to stuff on headphones was, was always attractive to me. The political stuff is harder for me to explain. I mean, I I can I can I can understand why someone would get into music that's good more than I can understand why they would be obsessed with congressional districts. Uh, but I'm <laughs> I'm both. I mean that, that that's what I do. I I really find it all interesting. Uh, and with with the music, I mean I, I remember I can recall where I bought a lot of these albums first. But I, I I was into heavy metal and from there went backwards into progressive rock. Uh, was able to find in the golden age of cassette tapes just a, a ton of you know, three and four dollar progressive rock albums going deeper and deeper and discovering that uh, really with King Crimson was what I like the most. And you mentioned our band, which is King Crimson. And I, I'm going to feel did. like a, it's I okay. Kind of That's all rhythm, right. Yes. <laughs> uh, you gonna... wrecked the big reveal. Come on. <laughs> I'm sure it's in the title of the actual podcast, right? Unless... Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yes, it is. It's not like <laughs> Patreon where you have to pay $20 and then you find <laughs> out, find, to find out what our secret, secret band is this week. <laughs> no, no, no. But so, as you were saying, Scott. Yeah, I mean, the big reveal here is I'm going to be a big old third wheel on this episode because uh, <laughs> King, King Crimson is one of, uh, is is Dave's favorite band, as he just told us. I know they are one of uh, Jeff's favorite bands of all time. And I, I mean, there's no reason to lie to you guys. I probably have heard, before we started prepping for the show, I had heard likely one King Crimson song in my entire life. I have heard so far, I've heard far, <laughs> far more at this point. But you guys are going to carry the bulk of this episode. I have a, I have a sneaking suspicion because of your deep, deep love of this band called King Crimson. 
we turn things back to Dave to explain to us why you love King Crimson, how you got into them, and why other people should care about this band. Yeah, I got into, I'm just repeating myself a little bit, I got into Metallica and Megadeth and that kind of stuff first. You know, I think it's Derrigois if you're an uh, introverted kid who likes loud things, you're into that music. Especially, I, I, I actually got into that backwards through poppier stuff, like uh, musicals and things like that. I, I liked big melody and I liked we- weirdness. Uh, and so I first got some Yes albums on, on cassette uh, and then heard about the the greatness of King Crimson and didn't understand it at first. I, 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 like everybody, I got um, in the core of the Crimson King, their debut album. Set the straight man to the late man. Where have you been? I've been here and I've been there and I've been in between. I talk to the I think the 16, 17-year-old version of me was not as jazz conscious uh, as as I am now. Uh, I remember having enjoyed a lot of Yes stuff, uh, enjoyed like the, the immediate hookiness of like a roundabout, uh, the, you know, if you wait two minutes, hookiness is close to the edge. I was like, well, this this first song rocks a lot. Uh, I don't know what they're doing with the big noodling, uh, <laughs> noodling horn section, uh, the there's, I think we'll probably get to some of the more instrumental stuff on the on the album. I, I it didn't throw me. It only it took a couple of years later when I got into Talking Heads and discovered Adrian Ballou, uh, who played on well, played uh, on Remain in Light. Did some of the actually the not just the best guitar work on that album, some of my favorite guitar work ever. That he was in a version of King Crimson. So I doubled back and found uh, what we're going to talk about later. Again, the this era. A uh, couple, actually, two eras that Adrian Ballou joined this band, remade the sound completely, and from there I kind of listened to everything. I just found it very interesting that Robert Fripp, the one constant in this band, kept reconstituting it with whatever he found daring and interesting at that moment in time. I mean, he's uh, on on the reunion tour that kind of hasn't stopped. It started in 2014. I remember him telling Sid Smith, who's kind of the official band biographer, that. The music must sound fresh whenever it is it is written, which is a very frippism kind of turn of phrase because it's it's a little bit dada, but it means I mean this I don't he does not want to he did not want to record albums that sounded like the last album and he did not mm-hmm. want to take bands on the road that sounded like last band unless they they completely nailed it. I mean, King Crimson the longest any iteration was out there was about three years. Um, he and I, I just found that exciting. I mean, as somebody who never kind of got into jam band music, I think the thing that helped that that, that helped me back is, oh, we're noodling, but it's kind of the same noodling every time. 
So it, it was attractive to me that this band was just building different versions of its songs, uh, different versions of its complete sound from era to era or from, you know, six month period to six month period. If you get to the seventies, actually there's not too much for me to say in the sense of how I got into crimson, because it actually is very close to what Dave said. I, I had a, it, throughout high school, I had a, a friends of mine who were like, we we're all music nerds. We were the music nerds who were in the, in the band in high school and did, you know, I sang in madrigals. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was a really cool kid in high school. Wasn't I? And, um, you know, I was giving them music. I was, of course, a Beatlemaniac back then and lots of classic rock. And, and one of them, my friend Chapel, Chapel Kingsland, he's a composer. I think he's actually, uh, you know, he, he runs a, 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 the, he's a choir master for a church somewhere in New York right now. Uh, he, he had one band that he was really, really in, intent that I get into. It was King Crimson. He gave me his, his 180 minute mixtape. You know, like this is again, cassettes, C, C90, 90 minutes on each side, one of those ones that'll fray if you play it the wrong way. <laughs> Uh, and of course, I dutifully really tried hard to listen to it. This is like King Crimson all the way from the first album to the you know, the Discipline era at that time, because I think Thrack had only just come out. Um, I didn't get it at all. I have to admit, it didn't it didn't have any appeal to me at that point. I had no framework to deal with it. I had no I had no love of prog. In fact, I was even embarrassed to admit to my friends that once upon a time Genesis had been my favorite band. You just Phil Collins era Genesis. Uh, Genesis would be the band that kind of got me into progressive. Lamb lies down on Broadway and then opened the door to everything else. And then in college, I went backwards. What did I start with? I started with that four CD box set. It's called Frame by Frame. Still a good box. Um, and I started listening to this music, and I just said to myself, well, it may not be initially welcoming, but I know that if, it, if I listen long enough, it'll click. And it did. It didn't even take that long to click. And then as I started exploring them more and more, and particularly as I became a fan of live music, and this is really important for me, I became obsessed with King Crimson. I became convinced and i remain convinced to this day that king crimson especially the 1972-74 era band uh, the one with with bill bruford john wett and david cross is the best one of the two or three best live bands in the history of rock and roll prog whatever you want to call it popular music of the last 50 years one of the truly great improvisatory bands up there with the Grateful Dead or Can, a band that uh, of such singular power that I can listen to them play the same set list and the same shows, you know, on back-to-back -back nights, you know, spanning you know, over a month's worth of gigs, and I'll never get bored because every night has something different to offer. Every night has something to, 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 to give to a listener who's paying attention. And then the other thing I realized is that I was in love with Robert Fripp. Robert Fripp is the lead guitarist and, you know, initially, maybe not, but over time is clearly the leader of this band. And I have really you know spent a lot of time thinking well who's your favorite drummer who's your favorite bassist you, know, you can come up with lots of different answers for different styles i i actually am pretty clear on the fact that robert fripp is my favorite guitarist of all time uh and i don't really have a second one i don't have you know, fripp but also this guy <laughs> everyone comes second to me to Robert Fripp, who I, I find in terms of his tonality, in terms of the way he innovated with the instrument, in terms of uh, the versatility which he displays, he can play, you know, blindingly avant-garde music, and he can shred, and he can be, you know, very atonal, but then he can be just absolutely soaringly balladic bal and melodic. I find him to be the most fascinating lead guitarist of the rock era. Smell of paint, a flask of wine, 
ahead and turn those faces all to me The blunderbuss and halberd sharp The Dutch respectability To make their entrance to one by one Defenders of that way of life Red brick home, the bourgeoisie And get our lessons for the The only thing he can't do is play the blues, which leads to its own hilarious outcomes when people <laughs> force him to. Um, like on Joe the Lion by David Bowie, where he was famously told by Brian Eno to, to play the blues, and, and that's what came out. Um, but beyond that, everything that Fripp does with a guitar is something that I'm interested in listening to. And I would actually argue that, that you know, you can talk about people like Glenn Branca and maybe you know Lee Ronaldo and Sonic Youth, Thurston Moore, if you really want to you know split hairs and cavil. But I would argue that the last true innovator in guitar, the last guy in the chain of doing things that had not been done with the instrument, was Robert Fripp, and that everybody who's come after him has either been an echo of what he did and innovated, or of you know other people like you know Hendrix, for example, or something like that. That he is kind of the end of a long link of guitar innovators, which is sad, I suppose, but you know I guess also to be expected because you know all instruments have a certain range of sounds that you can coax from them. So yeah, I, as you know, as Scott already cued you guys up to, I love King Crimson. I love them a lot. Um, <clears throat> And I guess, you know, we might as well start where the beginning starts, which is with In the Court of the Crimson King, 1969. Uh, people with a sense of music history already know this album. Even if you don't like, you know, Crimson or you don't like progressive rock, you probably heard this album or at least heard of it. It is an album which I would argue invented progressive rock as a genre. Now, that's not to say that there weren't progressive kind of songs and sounds and albums and bands that came before this. Dave wrote an entire book about it. You could talk about Soft Machine, for sure. You could talk about, you know, Fairport Convention. You could talk about The Nice. You could talk about a lot of precursors, particularly in Great Britain, uh, to the sound that King Crimson would come up with on this first album. But this is the album that made it a commercial force. This is the album that made bands rush out and buy Mellotrons <laughs> and, you know, decide that they had to start writing in 7-4 time. This this is an album that changed the topography of the musical landscape, and it's not going to be one of my two favorite albums at the end of the show, which just tells you how vast and rewarding a discography Crimson has. I guess I, I want to turn it over to Dave to talk about this one first, because it is, of course, one of the most important albums ever, and I'm not really sure what new anybody can say about it. You give it a shot. Let's see. I. It's just amazing looking at it and having researched it a lot and talked to the people who played on it for my book, uh, as an old person now in my thirties, I'm always surprised when people just out of their twenties make this, this complicated music, uh, in, in, in reporting on it, it was pretty simple. It's just that these guys were able to, it, it to an extent ripping off classical music. They liked it was Bolero, uh, and Mars, the, the Holst 
mm-hmm. Pulse music. I mean, they had a couple of direct influences. The the Who was one of them too, and then the jazzier, more exploratory parts were just you know you had a uh, a player who was in military bands and had those parts ready to go. Um, it's like the yeah. what has now become my favorite part on uh, 21st Century Schizoid Man, the the that that horn fr- the saxophone freakout. I didn't quite get it at first. It was, it was really just, it was there. <laughs> it was just like a piece they, they put in the music. So like a lot of first albums, they had this material sitting around uh, and it just cohered better than one would think. Also the, the use of the Mellotron, still pretty new. I mean, this is this is two years after Sgt. Pepper. Um, using the Mellotron for evil, <laughs> as they do here, just yes. really ominous sounds. With the Moody Blues, who had been right. using it a lot, but that's all like very kind of hippy dippy lovey music. <laughs> very different. No, completely. I mean, this is it's very simple what they're doing here. I mean, it, so I mean, heavy metal exists in the late it starts in the late nineteen sixties, and it is kind of goofy, and it's it's, it's always it's it starts off theatrical, but from the outset, uh, King even with this this band that only exists for a year, actually kind of on a, a little bit less than a year. Um, is still is uh, you know Peter Sinfield's lyrics, uh, Robert Fripp's playing obsessions with tritones and stuff, um, and that rhythm section just uh, they make everything a bit more interesting by being ominous. They just discovered the power of ominous music when they're extremely young, and they don't. I mean that defines their sound uh, with with a couple of diverge, uh, digressions on the next record. Uh, they even when they're not incredibly heavy, uh, they are just a a very dark band. So that, that appealed to me once I give the album a little bit more time. That's what I found so interesting about it. I think one of the, the interesting things I read, it might've been Sinfeld who said this, it might've been Ian McDonald who said that like, you know, we, we really consciously tried to be difficult on in the court of the crimson king we tried to be weird like we were not satisfied with writing a song in four four time or if we did like on epitaph you know that's like you know a, a straight up kind of a, a kind of a standard plotting ballad with like we knew we had to expand it and add in more sweeping chords and here's an extra instrumental section here's ian with a flute solo <laughs> like they knew they had to like make it big and make it large and this is of course before that period where you know this sort of thing was labeled self-indulgence and it was attacked and criticized for people like you know who do you think you are you're, you're so full of yourselves you're so pompous um and so that's why you get in songs 
like 21st century schizoid, man, that riff, you know, the opening riff, which is da 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 da, that's a riff that would be standing by itself. But then they thought mm-hmm. to themselves, they have to, let's add those last few steps, the do, 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 which I think, you know, Giles came up with. That in and it's like a is, squealing sound, too, is what it, really, really gets you once mm-hmm. you. Once you listen to this on good headphones, which took me like 15 years to acquire. <laughs> acquire, right. Yeah. But, that, but what is most impressive about it is that when people set out self-consciously to make, quote, difficult music, usually, usually the results are crap, all right? And, you know, if you want any evidence of that, listen to any late 70s-era Jethro Tull album, okay? Have uh, you ever heard Minstrel in the Gallery? Don't. It's not good. Um, but on this, 21st Century Schizoid Man, just like you know, not being an organic construction, being something that was intentionally assembled. It feels natural. That riff is as, you know, memorable and as majestic as anything in rock, and it comes off. Then you have a completely different side of the band right after it with, uh, you know, I Talk to the Wind, which mm-hmm. is just these very pretty flutes and, you know, these you know, doodly doodly. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. the dancing, it's a bit of the dancing fairy stuff, right? Um, which mm-hmm. I guess in a way brings me to Pete Sinfill. And why don't we dispose of this right now? I'm going to be honest. In all of Prague, there are a lot of lyricists in Prague and they're all guilty to one extent or another of, of being pretty self-indulgent with their lyrics. But there are some people who I think really did a great job of pulling it off, Peter Gabriel being the, the best example. And then there are those who didn't. And my number one nominee is Pete <laughs> Sinfield. He is my least favorite lyricist in progressive rock. And he didn't just work with King Crimson. He also wrote for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer later on. Um, but on this album, it works. This is the one album where it works. I have to say, this is the one album where the darkness, the, the you know, the sort of devilish imagery and the, 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 the you know portentous gloom, actually comes off. You know, like you know, talking about like was you know, like you know the, the puppets dance and the fire witch in the court of the crimson king. I mean, this stuff's laughable if you if if you don't bring it off with enough self assurance and enough belief in what it is you're doing, you sound like a joke. If, if this was played by early Genesis like remember from Genesis to Revelation where they were like schoolboys and like doing a their, their, their progressive idea was to do a, an album uh, based on the Bible from Genesis to Revelation sure <laughs> that'll work buddies um, like imagine them trying to play this music and trying to bring it off it would sound clownish even if it was all the same music because you have to have an instrumental approach you have to have an assurance in the way that you play and the way that you sing that you know, never lets on that you're singing songs about, you know, moon children. Uh, mm-hmm. By the way, I'll say that Moonchild is the only weak spot on the record, and yes. everybody knows yeah. it. Robert Fripp himself knows it. They reissued this album not too long mm-hmm. ago, and on the official remix and reissue, Fripp himself edited Moonchild. <laughs> it, had been, it had been like, you know, 10 minutes long and all these little beep-boop vibes. 12 minutes long. 12 minutes long, and even, even Fripp said, like, ah, it's too much. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it is the, the the melody itself is really pretty, and actually, 
I, I keep I, I'm having all these you know Guy Pierce memento flashbacks to how I first got the album. I think I first heard Moonchild. There's a movie called Buffalo '66. Uh, it has a lot very, of rock stuff in it. Yeah, very, yeah, very cool indulgent indie movie from the '90s uh, where Christina Ricci dances in a roller skate no a bowling alley I think to this song. And the, the the main melody is very spare and very pretty, but yeah, there is just like a ton of dross uh, at the end that was was right to cut off. That's and it really is the only slow part of the album. I mean, every every other melody, every melody, every every actual attempt at a melody here like totally nails it. Scott, so uh, the the one song from King Crimson I knew before entering uh, the prep for this episode was Twenty Fourth Century Schizoid Man. We we had a show at our college radio station called Vintage Rock. We played music from nineteen sixty four to nineteen seventy four, and I know that that song was on uh, the playlist. So I had heard that previously, and it 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 you know. You can hear it just once and 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 get it. I mean, this is this is not quite this is this is not impenetrable music um, for the for the for the uninitiated, I should say. Uh, it, it's not all that difficult to to get into. Twenty first century schizoid man has that lumbering heavy main riff. You get a little midsection of some like up tempo jazz rock uh, a little bit. You get introduced to Robert Fritz, uh, Fripp's uh, eight tonal solo in the song. And it's a it's a pretty darn good introduction to the band. I agree with uh, I guess both of you guys. Moonchild is the is the low part of the album. Uh, you know the the song before that, uh, Epitaph, has to me kind of a moody blues feel to it with the, with the Mellotron. And um, uh, you know the the last track on the album, which would be um, in the Court of the Crimson King, that's a good one too. I like that uh, Ian McDonald wrote that, who would later go on and and, and uh, be part of the founding members of Foreigner. A little different music there. Uh, yeah. although, although he took his sax with him, so, uh, but a lot of Mellotron in the, in the song, uh, right in the middle. I really like that section. There's there's some woodwinds and uh, Mellotron, or uh, maybe a guitar playing some scales. It's a very pretty section, and it just sort of oozes into another verse. <laughs> To grasp divining signs to satisfy the hoax. The yellow jester does not play, but gently pulls the strings. Smiles as the puppets dance in the court of the crimson. False ending at seven minutes. Uh, there's more. They got about three more minutes for you, though, uh, of in in the court of the Crimson King. So this is um, the album as a whole. Again, I think Moonchild's the only part that was that was down for me. Um, but but the rest of it is again relatively easy to to get into and enjoyable. I think one last thing to say about this album is that 
a lot of people, in retrospect, because we know what the you know, subsequent history of the band is, just assume, well, you know, this is Robert Fripp's band, so In the Court of the Crimson King must be Robert Fripp's album. It's not. Not really at all. His guitar work on it is good, mind you, um, but this is an album primarily driven by Ian McDonald, who yeah. is their mellotronist and their flautist and their saxophonist. He played all the woodwinds on this, which, of course, those three things are the dominant instruments on every single song. He wrote the music for the most part. Greg Lake wrote part of Epitaph. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, this is all Ian McDonald. And the, instrumentally, the other major contributor is, uh, is, is Mike Giles. Right. Uh, and th- that drum work is remarkable. And I guess it doesn't really get enough credit because Giles didn't go on to have like, like a really prominent career. He played in some other bands in the 70s. Uh, but his work is so just you know, precise, uh, but not soullessly precise. I think of Carl Palmer as my sort of go-to, sort of like metronomically perfect, but there's no, there's no spirit in there. Uh, Giles' work is, is, is precise and it's angry. There's a real anger in the way he drums, you know, rat-a-tat-tat-tat, Stuff feels like it just, it comes like stabbing out of your speakers. Especially in the last song, especially on, I think, in the Court of the Crimson King. He's really yes. fabulous there. He's fabulous on that. He's fabulous on Schizoid Man. And so it was a, you know, imagine what you must think if you're Robert Fripp. This is a band of four or five equals. And then you go on your first big tour out throughout the United States, out well, first through through Britain, and then you go to the USA, the big USA. You're making it in America. You're, your album is rising up the charts. You're making a name for yourself. You, you finish up. You do your last show at the Fillmore in San Francisco, and then Giles and McDonald turn to you and say, we're done. We're quitting. (laughs) We're quitting the band. The most important members of your band. Oh, and then Greg Lake says, yeah, you know what? I've been talking to these two guys, Keith Emerson, Carl Palmer. We're going to do our own thing, too. And suddenly, you're left holding the bag. You're the only person left in the freaking band. Made an incredibly important album that you know, has a huge amount of hype. And the industry is, is got – you've got the wind in your sails. The industry is behind you. And then your band falls apart. And what do you do? Well, a lot of bands would simply cease to exist. How, do you, how else do you carry on when you know, three-quarters of your instrumental band just walks away Fripp somehow managed to keep it together and it was I, if nothing else you've got to give the guy credit for just like you know using spit and twine and chewing gum to just like wrap together an album for the next year in 1970 uh, to keep King Crimson going and he, he, he got Greg like he's right, like listen he I know you're not going to be part yeah. of us anymore you're going <laughs> to be a part of ELP but can you just sing for us please I'll, he, I think he even promised to, like I'll give you uh, some of our gear you can take the amplifiers yeah. if you just sing on the Apple. Uh, he got uh, you know uh, Peter Giles, who was Mike Giles's brother, to come in and play on the album. He got Mike to you know just be a session man, and he put together in the wake of Poseidon, which is this very kind of labored follow up to In the Court of the Crimson King, and even the name of it gives you a sense that this is clearly a repeat, and it's going to be a lesser repeat of what they did on the first record, from In the Court of the Crimson King to In the Wake of Poseidon, and the funniest thing about it is that it's formatted almost exactly the same way. They open with like a big angry number, pictures of a city, which is like 21st century schizoid man. And then they go to like a, a soft. It's kind of like woozy. Yeah, it has this, yeah. this, which makes it fun, but 
the whole album is way goofier than what they were doing way before. Go- way goofier. And it's like it, it, it attempts to mimic Crimson King in its formatting and certainly in its title. Uh, but it, it's a pale imitation. I do think there are some things on this record that I like. I like the title track, which is meant to be the epitaph-like song. Mm-hmm. I, I like In the Wake of Poseidon. I think instrumentally the, the music on that is very underrated. And I really love Cat Food, which is the only thing yeah. on this record that seems different mm-hmm. from everything that had come before. They got, they got a guy called Keith Tippett, who's mm-hmm. going to figure prominently on the next record, to play piano for it. And he brings he, uh, the, the closest analogy. I'll probably drop a, an excerpt in here. But the closest analogy to Keith Tippett for people who aren't familiar with King Crimson would be um, Mike Garson on Aladdin Sane by David Bowie. You're playing this very avant-garde piano line that, that almost seems like it's amelodic, like it's like a cat walking up and down the keyboard. But it has a method to it. It's really an interesting song. And it's really a great, I think, production too and the way that all those elements are put together into a single that was never going to actually do well as a single but is a great song But as for the rest of it, including that awful Devil's Triangle, yeah. which ends it, it's just like, you know, it's 12 minutes of mush. <laughs> it, it, they, they did a really nice live version of it, uh, but this, this studio version is just intolerable, and it's no fun to me. I don't know. If anybody else wants to like go to bat for Poseidon, I think it's, it's disappointing. Its most impressive aspect is the fact that this band just didn't explode. <laughs> The, the two songs I'll highlight very quickly, guys, um, I think there's two songs that, that are worth uh, listening. Cat Food, which Jeff mentioned, is a, is, is a, is a different kind of song. It almost points to a, a, a potential way forward. Um, I get it very, I mean, this is obviously preceding them or predating them, but it kind of a, almost a steely Dan sound from, from Cat Food. These chiming, cascading piano parts that, that Jeff had mentioned uh, and kind of a funky, spacey sound to it. I like that uh, quite a bit. And then Pictures of a City, Right at the front of the album, uh, again trying to I don't say mimic, but but uh, but perhaps recreate what was happening with 21st Century Schizoid Man. Uh, they do a pretty good job. That, that midsection again with the start-stop guitars, which then slides into a, a slower piece and, and picks up uh, uh, and returns to another verse, and then the cacophony of sound toward the end. <laughs> So Pictures of a City, Cat Food, those are the two I, w- I would sing a lot from the album. But uh, as Jeff mentioned, much of the criticism here is that 
yeah, the band is is together and and Fripp found a way to do it, but but the songs themselves are kind of pale imitators of what, what what they did in the first album. I mean, it's not only repeating yourself; it's repeating yourself in such an obvious way. Yeah. You know, they they formatted it the same way. <laughs> they put every song is like almost a direct analog to a song on the right, other on the right. first I, album. Again, reminding me of Metallica, who had this stretch in the '80s. We're like, well, uh, we're going to change things up. We're going to have the instrumental as track three instead of track four. Like, <laughs> it's like they, I think that's why I, I, I definitely listened to this, and and had I not heard the blue stuff before, I started to get the sense uh, that they didn't do that much good after uh, in in the early in the Mark One period of the band. Not right, right. Uh, like, but yeah, Cat Food sounds like nothing else they ever did. Uh, right. And uh, these are some of these songs like they never play again. Some really open up live and pictures of a city, uh, which I, I don't love on the album has become a, a, a live staple. I, th- I think just because the it's, it's really fun to sing. It's my theory. <laughs> yeah. uh, you got somebody yelling deadly wheel. Uh, that's good. It, it, it rocks. But all these songs have the kind of, um, have a kind of uh, like not, not, sw- not swagger, but like uh, they're trying to shake it up, but not quite sure how <laughs> yet, and they don't really figure that out for a couple albums how to how to change the sound until they add like good reliable players. Which uh, no offense to anyone anyone who joined them for the album, but this <laughs> we're gonna here on Lizard they had they had a way of hiring like some scrubs who were not really <laughs> what they were doing uh, for a couple records. Yeah, speaking of good reliable players, everybody you heard on In the Wake of Poseidon, guess what? They're gone. Yep. Uh, they're, they're gone, except for Keith Tippett. Keith Tippett stays on for the next album. Uh, it's called Lizard, and uh, then ho- here comes a, a new cast of uh, drummers that you never need to hear of again. I think it was his Andy McCulloch. I can't remember the yeah, guy's name. That that, right. That's how important he is. Um, and um, uh, Boz Morrell. No, 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 no. That's on islands. Oh, that's no, no. the next who one. They, Sorry. Who, right. do they, who do they have singing this guy? Who do they have singing for Lizard? It's a guy named Gordon Haskell, uh, who who cannot sing. Uh, famous. Nope. <laughs> uh, can't carry a tune in a bucket. I don't know how they got that wrong. I don't mean to, like. Did, did Fripp never just listen to the guy humming like when there was no one else around and think, wait a second, you know, you might not be fit for purpose for what we're trying to do here. Uh, and in fact, he figured it out because he brought John Anderson in. But we'll we'll get to that in a second. Everybody hates Lizard. Fripp hates Lizard. The band who participated in it hates Lizard. Gordon Haskell and Robert Fripp still do not talk to this day. Fripp hates Haskell, and Haskell hates Fripp so much that when they did that box set that I told you about at the beginning of the show, frame by frame, he edited him out of every track that he was involved with with the band <laughs> on Cadence and Cascade, which is from The Wake of Poseidon. Just a baller move, by it the way. It was a baller move. He got someone else to sing that song, and then, then on Bolero, he got, I think, Tony Levin to yep. uh, just redub the bass part or something like that. But just like, say, like, no royalties for you. No performance royalties for you. You can go to hell. It was just a hilarious move. That's how bitter this era is for everyone. And the critics didn't like it much more but here is my secret confession. <laughs> I think Lizard is a pretty great album. I think that the second half of this album, which is devoted to a very long, sidelong instrumental suite, everybody was doing those these in this era, mm-hmm. is not as good. But I think even the first half of Lizard, the title track, which is that sidelong thing, is magnificent. It's only the second half, which is the instrumental work, which falls to pieces.
first half of this album, which is as weird and as and as uh, you know unfocused and strange and disarmingly jazzy and and not rock as King Crimson ever got, is some of the most rewarding if you put the time into it material from their early career. And again, you know, I don't want to you know force people to go drop fifty dollars or something like that. But if you hear the Steve Wilson recent remix of this material, it is so superior to what the original mix of this album was like. And it reopened it for me in a way I did not think was possible. Like everyone else, I hated Lizard. But now I listen to a song like Indoor Games. You know, Gordon Haskell still can't sing, but man, those weird synths, the you know, bloop, 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 bloop sound of the synths and Mel Collins playing these saxes in the background, these weird honking, farting woodwinds. <laughs> it, it appeals to me. It has a, a, a goofiness and sort of like, is this the second time I thought Pete Sinfield actually wrote some decent lyrics? No one else will go to this out al- bad for this album, but damn it, I'm willing to do that. So everyone else, just tell me how wrong I am. I, mean, I agree with Robert Fripp that it's mostly it's mostly not that interesting. <laughs> Even I think when he he takes a, the sidelong suite in future releases, it's something he also chops. I mean, he he's like you know me when I'm 16, taking tapes and <laughs> making my own albums out of them and cutting out the, the long intros. The he's boring parts, right? He's saved yeah. a couple of things. I mean, my favorite little instrumental flourish on the album is uh, "Circus" in the first song, which again has the sort of uh, doomy, doomy swinging yeah. synthesizer part. Uh, he does a couple of runs on acoustic guitar, which sound a lot like what he would for the rest of his career, really. I mean, like the kind right. of, uh, well, Fripp has several famous that one he has not invented by the time of this album, which is the Frippertronic, um, sustained notes, which I love, which keep me hooked on, on a lot of what they, what he does. Uh, and the other is this kind of really, really fast picking, uh, that, Again, it's not it's not necessarily pretty. It's not like a hoedown. It is like uh, almost like a scale, but 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 taking but really jagged. And he does that a couple times. A, a acoustic, a thing he does not do that frequently. I like that part. Everything Gordon Haskell does, yeah, is trash. And if you read my book, uh, he blames he blames uh, Zionists for uh, well, he blames Fripp, but then also Zionists for him being kicked out of the band and for him not being a successful musician after this. Uh, which I would credit more to him not being very good. He has a, he has a weird hit in the '90s that is like a perfectly serviceable Starbucks kind of love song. Uh, but yeah, he's he's one of these guys who I actually encounter in politics and in writing about music. Who are not very good, but are convinced they're a genius, uh, and that's him. So yeah, he he drags the whole album down. Uh, I'm not going to uh, defend it. I, I am not on Team Jeff in terms of trying to resurrect its reputation. But you don't even like when John Anderson of Yes comes uh, in and sings. You know, Prince look, Rupert away. You don't like hearing him sing about staking a lizard by the throat. There Come are on, there Scott. are parts of Lizard that aren't bad. Um, uh, Circus, which Dave mentioned, I think is is clearly the 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 standout track on the album. Maybe because Haskell's vocals are so down in the mix, as far as what I can hear. He also like just laughs singing them at one part, which they don't edit out. 
out, yeah. and, which he explains because he thought the lyrics were dumb. Yeah. So the guy, like, good way to just join a band and just trash everything. <laughs> oh, the successful band that let me into it. They suck. You know, that, that, that's Gordon Haskell. But actually on the record, it's, you know, it's, it reminds me of what Bernard Sumner does with New Order, just saying, right. hey, yeah, that's I wrote your dumb lyrics. Ha, ha, ha. It's actually kind of fun. Uh, and, and, and the circus itself has uh, this kind of funhouse music background. I, I, I wrote down in my notes that evil clown music is, is how I put it. Kind of <laughs> very spooky and, and, and yeah, evil circus music uh, is, is what I'd call it. So that, that's the high point. There's, there's really nothing else here I want to highlight. Indoor games for a while is interesting. And Haskell, mm-hmm. that's where he laughs at the end because of the insanity or the, the craziness as he feels of the lyrics. But uh, the rest of it is really difficult for me to recommend in any way. Ah, uh, where's your sense of adventure, Sorry. Scott? Well, it's not going to get better on the next album. Yeah, yeah, maybe perhaps you like the tamer, more suntan tones of Formentera Lady, which opens islands. Okay, so what happens? You know, Lizard, the, you know, this ensemble, ill-fated, Gordon Haskell and Robert Fripp immediately fall out, uh, as we've already explained. And then the rest of the band say, you know what, this, this doesn't sound like it's going anywhere. And they all quit, too. The only person that sticks around is Mel Collins, who played the, the, the reeds and the, and the woodwind and the sax on uh, Lizard. And he sticks with this band, and then they got to find a bunch of other people. So who do they do? They find, um, um, uh, gosh, I can't remember the name for the drummer. I want to say it's Ian Wallace. They find Ian Wallace to play drums, and then they find uh, a guy who has never played bass before in his life, Boz Burrell originally recruited as the vocalist but then the other bassist that they were going to have a guy named lindsey kemp says screw this i'm going to go play folk music i think he joined steel eye span and uh then they say to boz well you know why don't i just teach you how to play bass guitar so that's this is how the lead singer of bad company learned his instrument uh when robert fripp literally taught him note for note how to play the king crimson repertoire like so they could go out and play games live <laughs> and the album they ended up recording is islands and uh, this is not a good album. Uh, this is not a bad album, actually. I think there are parts of it I will defend, but this is not a good album in any reasonable respect. And the thing that disappoints me the most about it is, you know, as the one guy who's willing to defend Lizard, Lizard had a sense of adventure. After in the wake of the in the wake of Poseidon, I was just trying to repeat what Crimson King was doing. Lizard is like, well, okay, we're trying something new. And then Islands is just like, yeah, yo, here's some hippie. Shit. Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. Here's here's Formentera Lady. You know Keith Sinfield writing. He's like, oh, here's this woman. It's it's like you know we're all we're all sunning ourselves out in Ibiza, smoking joints, and you know isn't this nice? And then there's that that stupid stupid like uh, groupie song, Ladies, Ladies of the, of the road. road. I don't know. Oh, like it's terrible. Oh, I don't like it. It's it's like a famous song in King Crimson. It gets onto all their compilations, but I don't like it at all. There's Song of the Gulls. There's Islands, the title track, which is kind of okay. But I, you know, there's nothing. I really like it. I really like Islands, but it, it has very cheap melodic tricks. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, just, uh, it, it is a pretty ballad uh, with the instruments, of the noise dropping out at one point, and the piano coming to the fore. And it's 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 like uh, it's fine. Every band needs a song like that. Uh, but it's it's as unadventurous as they've ever done.
I completely uh, agree. And there's yeah. one thing on this record that I will defend, and I suspect, Dave, that you might be on my page here, but maybe I'm wrong, and that's the Sailor's Tale. Yeah. That, to oh, me... Oh, yeah, which rolls. That is, uh, that is the future. That is the song on this album that is the future of everything King Crimson would go on to do. Not only it's a purely instrumental track, it's this agitated instrumental piece that is driven entirely by Fripp's guitar, where he plays the guitar in um, electric guitar in all banjo style. That he starts, he starts off with like a loud sustained note that again it sounds like the you know first time on on a King Crimson record that you hear what Fripp is going to sound like in the in the mid seventies, and then all of a sudden he starts just everything you know drops out and it's just him shredding and like finger picking and shredding at the same time and you get this fascinating combination of 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 electrified and distorted music and also like banjo frailing and it is a a fascinating vision into a king crimson that could never have been accomplished with the people that he was playing with at this time but it is by far to me at least the best thing on on islands and i'm sure that you uh you're a real big fan of ladies of the road scott <laughs> well <laughs> here's what i want to say about this is that i i again I, I don't think it's any better really than lizard but there are interesting pieces here like the the cornet solo on islands is interesting to listen to uh even on ladies of the road i think frips there's there's like this opening picking slashing that that's happening that i think is an interesting listen um the uh, the the opening track that string bass open and then there's flutes and chimes and piano it's kind of interesting to hear um and i will uh, also go to bat for sailor's tale which m- might be my favorite one of their instrumentals it's it's a great great song no lyrics and it's during sailor's tale it might be one of the first times because I, I go through this chronologically, so I get to Islands and I listen to the Sailor's Tale. It's one of the first times I've man, I'm I'm glad there are no lyrics because I just really want to listen to them play. It's just it's a pretty great band performance. There's this insistent bass drum foundation to everything. Uh, the horn arrangement is great. As Jeff mentioned, there's this this uh, frip guitar like you've never heard before, but you would you would hear again in the future. favorite instrumental songs that that the band did other than that the album is again largely forgettable unless you want to pick out those those individual moments on some of these tracks that i think are at least you know worth a listen there's really not much more to say about that unless you want to talk about the uh the worst live album ever released um maybe not the worst but close to it earthbound also Um, basically disowned by the band 
Well, I mean, he finally released it, and he, they, they've ended up releasing like literally every single tape from this era. Yeah, by the way, for people who become really addicted to King Crimson, if you go to their website, DGM Live, you can basically download almost every circulating live show from the band's history from 1969 all the way up to the present day that exists. Uh, it's a pretty great resource, actually. And it's, it's a way Fripp has found to monetize not only their, their catalog and, and their archives, but also all the bootlegs that circulate from them. But yeah, this is... This is a live record on recorded on terrible sounding tape of, of a band that is at war with itself. They had already broken up and they had to go on the tour <laughs> out of obligation. And it's obvious that that everybody hates one another and they're pissing <laughs> all over each other. It's piss takes. Like, you know, the band would like, you know, j break off and do goofy like comedy routines in the middle of the shows. And Fripp would be like, well, shut up. He, I have tapes where he's like literally screaming at Boz Burrell and Ian Wallace telling them, you know, to shut the F up so we can play. Uh, and then Fripp got his revenge by releasing this incredibly bad live album basically saying this is what we sounded like and he called it Earthbound which is not subtle in terms of its title and it features two blues instrumentals and uh, uh, something called Groon which the, I, the better the less I say about it the better and then it also features the best live performance of 21st century Schizoid Man that they ever recorded which is you know random and, and bizarre but that's a great version of that song but yeah terrible album Scott I intentionally didn't even bother making you listen Thank to you. it they, they, they weren't uh, they weren't uh counting down the number of songs until they would be able to kick each other's ass behind the, uh, the exactly like the yeah no, it wasn't like the eagles at that, that <laughs> fundraiser for alan cranston yeah. no right. if you have any thoughts on this or shall we just move on to the next part of the band uh it's really bad i agree with you it's, it's just funny that even even <laughs> early on Fripp was interested in self-owns it's just like <laughs> he's just gonna uh, he was just gonna own this band uh because he wasn't proud of it and the people do that and and uh I guess I can also play DGM. In, in researching the book, I, I would kind of wonder what it sounded like at some concert in 1969 when the band started, and I would check and say, oh, they someone recorded this. It sounds like an undercover cop tape of, a, of an interview. It was not a good <laughs> recording, but they, they did record everything. Uh, it's you, you wish, you know, D, DGM's kind of got a spaghetti-on-the-wall approach to this. Kind of wish there was a King Crimson version of Dick from Dick, Dick's Picks who would curate all the good stuff and they they haven't they kind of do that uh with other iterations of the band but n not this one yeah this is this is not that great and, and sad to say i bought it all <laughs> you're keeping them in business jeff i don't think i own this one actually uh, i know i know i have all the all the live performances too i still i find something to enjoy in everything there but i don't find nearly as much to enjoy there as i do in what happens next the band breaks up again king crimson is dead Long live King Crimson, because what Fripp does, he met with, uh, with uh, you know, when they were touring uh, on the 72 tour, uh, they played Boston in March 11th of 1972 with a band called Yes, that were then just breaking in big. And uh, Fripp struck up a conversation with their drummer, a guy named Bill Bruford who was kind of getting tired of the whole yes scene, endless takes and editing tapes together, uh, no, no clear concept of what the music was going to be, but you edit it together in the studio, and it, it's not very liberating, and especially for a guy who comes from a jazz background and just wants to play. Uh, Bruford was getting tired of playing on yes, and in particular when they got to close to the edge, uh, the studio experience for him was one that he had gotten fed up with. So what did he do? 
He quit, yes, at the peak of their success and probably the peak of their, their greatness. And then he went and joined King Crimson, uh, which as a band didn't even necessarily exist yet. It was basically Fripp saying, hey, Bill, you come with me. We'll get together some people. We'll see if this works out. Fripp then recruited a couple of other people. He recruited a violinist named David Cross, who he'd seen and he liked. He recruited John Wetton, who was the bassist for a band called Family and the vocalist. And he found this insane person beautifully insane person, a percussionist and a drummer named Jamie Muir, who didn't play drums in, or even percussion in the normally understood sense. This guy played bags of leaves. He played, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, duck calls and, uh, you know, like, you know, wind up toys. He played gongs and he also played drums and he provided a coloration that was kind of unique, I think, in the annals of rock for a devoted you know, instrumentalist. And the name of this band became King Crimson yet again. The name of their album became Lark's Tongues and Aspic. And if you're looking for uh, any continuity in sound between Lark's Tongues and Islands, Lark's Tongues was you know, being performed in 1972, was released in early 73. Islands was released in 1971. It's a span of about a year and a couple of months between the two of them. Um, any continuity, uh, you came to the wrong place. It's a completely <laughs> new group. It's a completely new band. It's one of the best bands to have ever existed in the history of rock music, in my opinion, live or even in the studio. I can't say enough about how much I love the endless listenability and fearless avant-garde sensibility of Lark's Tongues in Aspic and this version of King Crimson. I agree with that. <laughs> this is not going to be very combative. I don't know yeah. we're going to fully disagree on something, um, especially the um, Lark's Tongues and Aspects Part 1 and 2 are... Yes. Uh, also, one thing I like about Prague is songs are long enough that if you're like me and your brain has been broken by the internet and you <laughs> have you know two minutes of attention span, uh, there's so much going on that I honestly will forget. Sometimes I remember, I remember a part, I know it's coming up, and there, there, there are often flourishes in these songs that I forget. And I hear also uh, quotes of this music or ripoffs of this music all the time. Uh, like I remember discovering, being way too excited and trying to tell people around me who didn't care that the, uh, the in the, the movie The Dark Knight, um, the Hans Zimmer's theme theme for the Joker uh, is completely a ripoff of Lark's Tongues and Aspect Part One. Uh, specifically, <laughs> yeah, specifically this this build up. Where you hear just very atonal um, David Cross violin 
rising and rising and rising and then everything crashing down um it sounds exactly like that uh and, and except not as good <laughs> part one also uh, it, it, the a lot of this music reminds me of uh some of my favorite wisdom in all and all of rock uh, cri- criticism which is Judas and Butthead listening to Radiohead's song Creep uh, in one of the episodes. And uh, I'm paraphrasing because the actual quote is kind of wordier. But the way uh, the paraphrase is, uh, if the part that sucked didn't suck so much, the part that ruled wouldn't rule so much. And so I'm like, yes! Another way of putting that is that their dynamics are good. And this album is full of moments where they, they... you really lull you or confuse you and then bring you, bring you up with like major chord and, or kind of tr- major, major minor, or just kind of new chords that are uh, just compelling and hooky. Uh, even a song like um, book of Saturday is kind of a pastoral, uh, cr- you know, creepy ballad. And then um, you know where it's going and here comes like a strange looping frip guitar part. Uh, mm-hmm. That's really beautiful in a way that I, by this point, he's already kind of experimenting with, um, with Brian, Eno. Uh, with looping and his guitar work's getting a lot more interesting. Right, but he's he, already rec- he's already recorded no pussy footing. Yeah, and so like he started using the tape loops and the backward sounds and the pedals that that make him him you know as a, as a guitarist. Yeah, he was interesting before, but that's that's when when it really clicked for me. Larkstone's aspect part one is amazing, and the book of Saturday, this ballad where for the first time was something that he's going to keep doing on his own records, on King Crimson records, on on guest records for other people. It's just figuring out the exact moment when you want. A strange backwards guitar guitar part uh, coming in. All completeness in the morning, asleep on your side. I'll be waking up the grooving, but not ever bright. She responds like a limousine, brought alive on a silent screen to the shuddering breath of yesterday. There's a sucker of the needy, incredible scenes. I'll believe you in the future, your life and death dreams As the cavalry of despair takes a stand in the lady's hair For the favor of making sweet sixteen You make my life a tiny book of newsy Saturdays And I have to choose I think this one too. I originally didn't quite get it, or thought it took a little long to get to the point. And then I realized, like that's that is what is great about the album, right? Is how long they they take to getting to these these great parts. I mean, the dynamics work on both you know macro and micro levels. So like, you Lark's tongues and aspect part two, mm-hmm. you know, which, which opens with you know the and then it goes into those quiet little violin cadenzas, you know, where you know cross and frip. Or duetting, and then the bass goes runs and up and down. That whole thing travels a vast range of dynamism. But then you look at it in the context of that entire second half of the album, and you realize that that's really just the conclusion to a sequence that was set up by the talking drum, which I think is a friend of ours, Dave, uh, John McFerrin. <laughs> who I think described it as like riding the elevator to hell. <laughs> and then, then it hits the bottom floor and it goes, and then the doors open and there you are, you're face to face with the devil himself. And that's, that's the last screech of the violin on the talking drum, which starts at a whisper. You almost, you hear flies buzzing around. That's those noisemakers that Jamie Muir does. And then all of a sudden, you know, just, you know, it goes you know, soft, like, boom, 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 
and then it just builds and it builds and it builds and by the end of the song it screams and then it cuts straight to Lark's tongue and you realize this is almost symphonic in the way it's constructed it's such a dynamic album and I guess the other thing is I will say that Lark's Tongue is an aspect part one I'm not going to mention this at the end of my five songs because I lo- I'm mentioning the album as a whole but I think that's probably the single most impressive piece of progressive instrumental composition in the history of the genre in that it is fearlessly unafraid to abandon pop structure in any way. There's lots of great mm-hmm. prog rock, like Close to the Edge. I love that song. But that's, you know, there's a lot of little pop bits. There's melodies. You can really hum that. You know, catchy stuff that you can sing. You know, Supper's Ready, Thick as a Brick, whatever you have. Um, there, there's, there's nothing about Lark's Tongue's Part 1 that resembles those songs in any way. It is almost classical. Uh, it, sort of like you know serialist you know post post uh, you know you know the modern era classical music and the way it's constructed and yet it's not boring and, it, and it, it's not a dirge it's it's incredibly compelling to listen to every detail falls into place it's so telling for me that the weakest song on this album exiles yeah. Uh, yeah. as a production is the best song in their entire career in my opinion when played live because. <laughs> yeah. It grew so much when they took it out on the road and you, you hear them. I have, like again, like 48 performances of this song, and you just hear it change every single night until by the end of their, their playing career in 1974, it's become something completely different from the album version. Um, uh, I could rhapsodize about Lark's Tongues all day, but I will spare you. Scott? So Jeff promised this was uh, his favorite era of the band, and you know sometimes Jeff promises aren't, aren't, aren't good. Most of the time, but but this time he's this time I I must admit he's right. This uh, these next three albums, man, the the highlights of these next three albums are just incredible. And, and there are some pieces I don't love. I'm not a uh, big fan of Exiles, as Jeff mentioned. I actually don't love the Talking Drum either from from this one. But this is a great sounding band. This is a great sounding band with Wetton on bass and and Bruford on drums. Those guys are just locked in that that rhythm section is incredible um lark's tongue part two man that song flies by in in a great way uh jeff mentioned that that kind of heavy riff and and bass combo there's this rolling tumbling bass line right around the three minute mark which is is tremendous there are these times when the music drops out you just get that heavy riffing from uh and uh and even at the very end (laughs) could i do one more immediately you want to say yes I'll, i'll hear that again go ahead Take another, you know, take another take if you want. Do it again. And they, they go through that chorus for one final time, right? Yeah. yeah.
fantastic. Um, yeah, first, uh, Lark's Tongues Part 1 is great. I like Book of Saturday uh, quite a bit. You hear right away, you know, Wetton's voice uh, on that one is is, 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 is is very, very solid. So this is the start of this era, which, yeah, I, I agree with Jeff, is, is really, again, especially the highlights. The, the best they are during these years is some just truly outstanding music. Now, the, the thing is, is that you, you go from Lark's Tongues and Aspect to a live album. Um, uh, although nobody really realized at the mm-hmm. time that it was really a live album, and that's Starless and Bible Black. Starless and Bible Black is, I think, approximately, if I had to do the, the actual timing math, it's something like 85% recorded live with the mm-hmm. audience tracks removed. There are only uh, two songs on this album that are studio-based. One of them is The Great Deceiver, the opening track, and the other is the second half of The Night Watch. Everything else was recorded live with the music stripped away. And the reason they did that is twofold. One, because uh, Fripp admits that he was having a lot of difficulty just composing, given the band's touring schedule. You know, you need time to sort of sit down, collect your thoughts, and start writing music. And so he'd come up with several songs, but a lot of these pieces on the album are actually live improvisations improvisations trio is as impossible as to believe as it is the song trio which is just beautiful just a beautiful beautiful kind of quiet melody uh no drums i think bill bruford on the original album of starless and bible black on trio was credited for admirable restraint for uh, not playing uh, it was just the other three members of the band playing live that's an improvisation Starless and Bible Black, the title track, is an improvisation. The Mincer is an improvisation. We'll let you know that's an improvisation coming out of, I think, Easy Money, um, a live version of it from like October of 1973. Uh, so it's it's almost a fracture was uh, not an improvisation by any means, but it was played live. Uh, this stuff is actually as close to a representation of what King Crimson sounded like live on the road during that era. And Yet, I find it to be the weakest of their three albums. I, I find there's stuff on here that it doesn't, maybe it doesn't cohere as a record. It doesn't fit in together. Lament never did a thing for me. Um, I don't really think that uh, you know, some of the improvs are that good. The Mincer, uh, I'm not impressed by that that much. I think Starless and Bible Black, eh, whatever. Uh, the same problem I have with that is the one I have with Providence. These very lengthy improvs that I think are kind of imp- compelling the first time you hear them, but they don't do much for 
me in retrospect. But on the other hand, this is the one that has cigarettes, ice cream, and figurines of the Virgin Mary. You know? <laughs> Anyone else want to take a thought on Starless? I'll go quickly. I just want to mention one song because it might be my favorite King Crimson song. I love The Great Deceiver. It uh, is the leadoff track on the uh, on the album. It blew me away the first time I heard it. I, literally, the song ends. The song ends kind of a kind of an abrupt ending, and I I literally said, "Wow!" Audibly, "Wow!" That's a great song. Uh, th- this 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 jarring tempo shifts. These huge riffs. There's actually, you know, a pretty uh, a soaring. There's a soaring melody to it. Um, Fripp toward the second half of the song. This spiraling guitar helping to lead the way. Uh, the, the, the lyrics aren't ridiculous. Um, they're not great. They're not ridiculous. Uh, and I love the very, very end, that last guitar line. Uh, what's in my mind is that, that staccato uh, beginning of, of You Keep Me Hanging On. That's exactly what it reminded me of as the song comes to a close. Uh, the Great Deceiver, I can't recommend highly enough. It, it's in my top five songs. It might be my favorite uh, King Crimson song. <laughs> to that <laughs> i kind of agree with both both of these points i mean i, I i'm on I, I do kind of wait for when i'm listening to the, the catalog myself I, I skip over this one more i mean i'm i'm more of a red person so we're getting into that well i mean so the, the, i understand because the, there's something about this album that feels curiously unformed it's very yeah. tough and, yeah. and well, you say i'm just gonna say the, the improv to me I mentioned their highs are, are very, very high. My favorite song of theirs might be on this album, but not everything works. The the, the improv, you know, using this 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 free improv that the jamming on stage as a way of songwriting doesn't really work for me. You meant trio, uh, the mincer, a lot of those improv songs from this album don't don't do it for me. I think trio works for me, but the rest of them I'm not entirely. I actually like will let you know too, but the rest of them I'm not entirely sold on. Uh, the one that almost everybody is sold on, and this is, I guess, you know, other than 21st or rather in the court of the Crimson King, uh, is probably the most well known and well loved uh, King Crimson album is Red. 1974's Red. What happened here? Well, they they kind of wrapped up their touring career. David Cross. Uh, either got fired or quit, depending on who you ask. It was kind of clear by the end of the their touring days, if you listen to the, the tapes, that he was increasingly out of place because this is becoming a really heavy kind of heavy power trio between Wetton and Bruford, just jamming all other sounds out except guitar. So the violin didn't have much place. Uh, and then they record this album, this studio album called Red. 
which, uh, you know, again, puts you in the mood of the devil. And then the devil's tritone, which is all over these songs. It's all over the title track. It's all over One More Red Nightmare. Uh, and then you have Fallen Angel. This is a tritone-ass album. This is one, this is, yeah, exactly. This is an album that basically is, is the, the living illustration of what, of what, the, what the devil's tritone can do in music. And everyone loves this album. This is one of Kurt Cobain's favorite albums, as a matter of fact, you know, of Nirvana. So this is an album that transcends genre for most people. I love it, and the only reason I won't rate it as highly as others is because I think Lark's Tongues is, you know, a greater achievement, and I think, you know, USA as a live album is a better representation of what they brought to the table live. But, you know, holy crap, this is, uh, if you're looking for an entry point with King Crimson, especially this era of it, you can't go wrong. I mean, you're not going to dislike a song like Fallen Angel, especially One More Red Nightmare, with the lyrics written by they had instead of Pete Sinfield, they had Richard Palmer James writing for them now, uh, formerly of Supertramp of all things. Uh, but he comes up with this great set of lyrics uh, about like how much he hates plane travel. You know, Pan American <laughs> Nightmare, Ten Thousand Feet Funfair, convinced that I don't care. They, it's safest houses, I swear. And then there's that great line: I was just sitting musing the virtues of cruising when altitude dropping, my ears start popping. And it's about like you know taking another nightmarish plane ride. And the music kind of captures that. It's just a great song on an album that everyone loves. But I think what everyone loves the most of it about it is the final song on the record, Starless, which is to many people's minds sort of the conclusion of, uh, of, of an entire arc of their musical career. And I don't want to take up you know, everything about this. Anybody want to talk about Red and in particular say something about Starless? Well, Starless is probably Starless the song. I mean, I think this is why I always present Starless and Bible Black because I I, every time I hear I hear the title, I'm like, I want to hear the actual song "Starless" instead of this. Yeah, uh, that's it, it, it's like a very easy song to choose. I probably would say at the end is my favorite King Crimson song. It does it's it's not the most adventurous, but it's just perfect, melodically perfect in every way. Uh, it spends the right amount of time on each section. It's just it's just uh, the Goldilocks of, of big weird King Crimson songs. Sundown, Uh, we have not mentioned Providence, which is the only 
weak part. And I like I can I can handle a lot of collage avant-garde music. Um, I generally skip over that because every other song in this album is just a, is just mm-hmm. a banger. Everything else is perfect. I mean, I think the band tripped by breaking up the band after this, which I'm spoiling in our section. Uh, part of the reason is, is it's maybe it's he's like retconning it after the fact, but whenever he's talking <laughs> about this area of the album, he's like, eh, you know, the band was pretty perfect. Uh, we were done. We it's like, like can't we top that. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's basically right. It, but that I, just don't, I never figured out what Providence is doing on here. Uh, this Fallen Angels amazing. The song Red, which I've, I think is, it might end up being the most covered uh, King Crimson song because it's 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 fairly simple. Um, the bass is this. We're getting to like the really. This is pre Tony Eleven, so like the last iteration mm-hmm. of the band had Tony Eleven in it. But the uh, um, I, I this has got to be the highest mix uh, of the bass that that Wetton pulls off here. Uh, and I love that. I don't know. I, I think as a original, as somebody who came to music originally through Yes, I really love bass mixed up carrying the melody of a song so the the four songs on this are, are probably the my favorite things they ever did um and then there's yeah then there's one that i, I skip over <laughs> which is well, about which is about right i mean th- this is i think jeff mentioned look it's it's likely the most exce- despite the fact the song it might be the longest set of songs i mean there's only what uh five five songs on the album right um but it's but it's accessible stuff. It, you get it immediately. It is a is a is a vital uh, recording. Uh, it, it it grabs you uh, right from the start with red. This crushing sound, constant highs. Um, you know, I, I wrote down you know, like a, like a, like a, like Rocky could train to red. Right. It's it, it's an adrenaline pumping song from a, from a power trio that is really hitting on all cylinders completely. <laughs> Dave's uh, dislike Providence. Um, one more red nightmare. I like an awful lot. It's a guy yeah. in a bus dreaming about a plane crashing to Earth and waking up just before it hits the ground. What a what a great bass drum combo on one more red nightmare. Really a fantastic song. You guys talked about Starless Fallen Angel is very very good too. Uh, again, I think this is probably you know, one of the reasons it was influential and, and cited by others is it, it, it's it's a good it's a good starting point. It's a pretty accessible album, and it gives you an idea of what these guys were like. This iteration of the band at the height of their powers as as a trio. 
I also just want to say there's something very fascinating about the way Robert Fripp builds tension on the song Starless. Uh, the first time I ever heard it, it, it I was taken aback because, you know, I, I've been listening to all of his guitar heroics and, and, and amazingly complicated parts, you know, the other King Crimson albums. And then, then the, like, the instrumental section comes in. It's the second half of Starless, and it's one note. He's just literally going plonking on his guitar. It's a complicated time signature, but it's one note. A five-year-old could play it at, with enough practice as he just goes up and it keeps ascending and ascending and ascending. And you think, what the heck is going on here? And then you realize it's just building to this agonizing, gut-spilling explosion uh, at the end of the song. And you know, for a guy whose normal mode is to play as many notes as possible, as quickly as possible, um, to just fall back and say, I'm going to play a very slow, repetitive groove. And as I build up to this giant explosion, Fripp was so intelligent. He was so self-aware about the music that he created and he could restrain himself. He, he was a guy, he is a guy still to this day, who, unlike almost any other musician of that era, lived intellectually inside his own head. Which I guess is probably why he, you know, as, as Dave pointed out, he looked back on this and he said, you know, screw it. We're never going to top this. You know, King Grimson has ceased to exist. He announced it at the uh, beginning of 1975, and the only thing that they left for people is the Memento, USA. I don't want to spend too much time on this, even though this is going to be one of the two albums that I recommend at the end of this show. USA is a document of the end of King Crimson's 1974 tour. It is a fantastic live album, one of my favorite live albums of all time, and probably the record that I would first recommend to somebody who wanted to get into this band and didn't know anything about them. Here, take this, see how this music sounds. Uh, it's every song, uh, every song on this record is an improvement 
upon their studio re- recordings, I think. And, and I would specifically say that Exiles, what a magnificent song. The way it builds that, that original, on the original Lark's Tongues version, Exiles is kind of this draggy, has this draggy violin, you know, and Mellotron opening that just doesn't seem to really go anywhere. And on the live performance here, Bruford instead just comes in and starts ramming it forward with the beat and then Wetton's bass starts coming up and just like making these kind of like almost like ripping the seams of the world apart roaring noises and then it comes into the the David Cross violin part and it's so beautiful and then Robert Fripp comes in with these guitar solos that sounds like the you know the sky is crying it's just a powerful song and kind of tribute to the way that they could take music that sounded one way on a record and then reinterpret it in a way live that redefined what the music sounded like I, I want to move on. We don't want to waste too much time here. We got to get to the last era of the band. But before we do, does anybody have any thoughts on USA? I, I'm only asking because, yeah, I love this album so much that I want everyone to share the love. <laughs> anybody? Nobody. Damn you. I have nothing to add. I'm not like a live out. Like <laughs> you have that portfolio in this conversation. I'm more of a uh, uh, curated live stuff and the albums and then seeing the band live but like digging through for the best stuff I've not done. So well, that's yeah, fair. it's fine. I've only heard some of the tracks. It's good. I think I really think once we get to absent lovers, that's, that's where I'm. I'm yeah. <laughs> I knew, I knew that was where we were going here. Well, okay. Well, what's the short version of what happens? Well, King, uh, Robert Fripp breaks up King Crimson and joins a cult, you know, you know, that's basically what happens. Uh, not as creepy as that might sound. King Crim, uh, Fripp had been kind of obsessed with the works of a guy called JG Bennett, uh, and uh, his sort of esoteric, spiritual, philosophical teachings, which Fripp then kind of generalized into a musical approach. He got a little millenarian and a little apocalyptic during that era. He thought things were kind of coming to a conclusion. Even in 1975, he talked about the importance of the, quote, drive to 1981, almost like he planned it all out in advance. <laughs> um, but what did he do during that long period off? Well, he ended up playing a lot of fantastic music on other people's albums. Don't want to spend a lot of time on this because, you know, we'll cover those artists eventually. Peter Gabriel, Brian Eno. Uh, Daryl Hall, um, Talking Heads. Uh, he basically was everywhere. He moved himself to New York. He recorded a solo album called Exposure, which is 
very weird, but also I think quite rewarding. Dave wrote actually rather eloquently about this whole era in his book. So if you want more details, you can find it there. Um, and uh, by absorbing all of those sounds, particularly coming out of the New York City punk new wave art rock scene and you know the British one in tandem, Fripp suddenly started getting that itch to record again. You see, he, he had been doing this kind of little dance gig called The League of Gentlemen, but it wasn't very satisfying. So what did he do? He decided to put together another band. Who did he call? Well, he called his old friend Bill Bruford, who surprisingly didn't have hard feelings about the <laughs> fact that Fripp broke up the band at the height of their success. said, all right, well, let's play again. And then he called Tony Levin. Uh, who was kind of a very famous studio bassist, uh, just one of the you know the guy who plays on all these art rock, particularly British art rock albums from the late seventies and early eighties. And then most critically, he called a guy called Adrian Ballou, who had first made his name playing for uh, Frank Zappa, and then had been poached from Zappa by David Bowie. And you can hear Ballou on the stage live album. You can also hear him on Lodger, uh, and then had. You know, gone on to be uh, almost like Fripp, a crack musician playing on other people's records. He, as Dave mentioned at the beginning of the show, famously contributed some of the most magnificent guitar parts you might ever hear to Talking Heads Remain in Light. And Fripp said, You know what? You should be a member of my band. And Baloo said, I would love to be a member of your band, but here's the thing I play guitar and you play guitar. What are we going to do? Fripp's like, We're going to have a two guitar band now. For the first time ever, Fripp was going to have someone to play off of on his instrument. And then Baloo also said, You know what? I write songs. I don't just sing them, but I write them. And Fripp's like, That's fine with me. So that's how the Discipline era band came together. They were originally called Discipline. Then they changed their name to King Crimson because Fripp was like, hey, you know, I got a brand. Why don't we monetize this brand? I, I don't believe any of the other stories. It wasn't like, oh, it felt right. It's like, oh, come on. Of course it's going to be called King Crimson. How are you going to get any attention for it otherwise? Nobody was rushing out to buy the League of Gentlemen album. You're going to call yeah, it Yeah, I mean, he had just been through a solo album and other thing that, like, did not sell that well. They didn't flop and destroy him, but he – right. <laughs> And in that era, he he didn't really mind this. I mean, he's he's pretty open about how he he literally, yeah, as you were saying, just drops off the face of the earth to find himself. And then he, when he's playing in New York in the seventies, often is playing with bands off stage. I mean, he's playing with Peter Gabriel. He's playing with Blondie, which is fun. Um, like in a way where he is hidden, and you hear his guitar, but he's not even there. So he'd done the anonymity thing. I think he kind of shook that off because it was clear that. And if you from this era, like. One thing that was kind of inspiring <laughs> from doing the research is that uh, the press is really excited that King Crimson's back. I mean, like, there's actually <laughs> a good amount of attention for this this '70s band returning, which surprised me because they were not they, they they were popular enough uh, in the beginning, but they were not in the firmament of like arena rock history. But people were the, the rumors that this guy was reconstituting a, a band called King Crimson were, were exciting. Like the you know, New York Times was covering these developments <laughs> it kind of it kind of belies the you know the story that we've all had received since then that like you know the punk revolution slayed Prague, and then like you know everybody hated those bands after that point like yeah people were genuinely thrilled that this you know that King crimson was coming back together and then of course robert fripp throws them 
an enormous curveball because what is the music that he comes out with? Well, it's on that first album, 1981, Discipline, which, again, you know, look for the continuity. It's actually there on a level, on kind of like maybe a psychological level or sort of a, a spiritual and conceptual level. But musically, you look for the, you know, red from red to discipline. This no. <laughs> is just as jarring as from islands to larks, tongues, and aspic. But it's the same band, and it's half of the same personnel. And a lot of people would say this is maybe King Crimson's greatest album. Now, Dave, I know you love this era, so tell us. What do you think about Discipline? Uh, I, I really love it. Again, this is what convinced me that I actually was a huge fan of the band. Once uh, I, It was discovering this record actually through one of one of Fripp's compilations. So Fripp has you know, remastered and re-released this, this music several times, did it in a box set about... 15 years ago, where he curates what he likes best from the albums. And I noticed he curated literally everything from Discipline except for the song Indiscipline. He's like, all right, all this is gold. None of this can leave. Uh, it's like me trying to re- arrange the books I'm getting getting rid of and then not getting, getting rid of any of them. Uh, and so it, 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 it it's amazing. By, it's by also, the way, Dave, he included a live version of Indiscipline on the next disc, he too. Did. <laughs> I know, I know we, we're talking about the same box set. Um, from the very beginning, so it, um, it, it it begins kind of similar to Lark's Tongues and Aspic. There is uh, actually each era of King Crimson, with the exception of um, of Red, has kind of begun the same way with there's like a clattering, there's something soft, and then the music comes in. Uh, same thing here. Uh, Elephant Talk begins with uh, this, what is a very new uh, piece of the King Crimson sound, Tony Levin's like amazing rubber, rubber weird bass. Uh, and then the band... Climb, all climbing in one by one, and uh, <laughs> lyrically, a band that that was singing, you know, dorm room poetry before now has Adrian Ballou yelling uh, in alphabetical order <laughs> synonyms for the word talk, uh, <laughs> argument, agreement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and every in in lieu of a chorus, there is him making the sound of an elephant on his guitar, yes. which is a thing he can do at, at parties. So from there, I mean, like the this album, this album just rules. Like this is a good rock album. Uh, I've there been there are videos you can find, which I've watched many times, of them playing like Feel Hunginji uh, and Elephant Talk for live audiences that are dancing to them, which is not a thing that you could do with the old King <laughs> music. Just they've completely rebooted, and even just uh, the aesthetics of this era are really fun for me. They don't change from album to album, but. Fripp, Fripp is reintroducing himself to the music world in this period as not an elder statesman. He's in you know his, his mid and late thirties, um, but he's completely rebooted as like a classy looking guy with short hair and who wears suits all the time. Yes, <laughs> and the whole band is it like there's Tony Levin in his pajama, pajama pants and, and t shirt, uh, Bill Bruford in his in his tank top, and and uh, Adrian Ballou who's one of these like 
thin guys who gets thinner as he gets older, like Nick Cave wearing like gigantic ham- MC Hammer MC Hammer uh, clothes and David Byrne suits. They just become like not quite a dad rock band, but they look like a new uh, they look like like a aliens version of a new wave band playing this really talking headsy um, danceable music, uh, and then with with the occasional diversion into a tonal weirdness. It's, it's just perfect. I, I look. Everything, everything on this, which sounds nothing like King Crimson before, especially this this dark period, uh, not dark, this period where Fripp is not with King Crimson, but it's seven years long, um, where he kind of perfects his Frippertronic uh, looping and sustained notes. Um, he does it here in like in a really uh, pop way when he needs to. It just, it, I, I find like, I, and this is also the King, King Crimson when I play it for people, they're most confused and they're most surprised that they like it. I mean, the thing is, it's also they're also capable of writing beautiful songs, and this is what I think this is like almost Adrian Ballou's band as mm-hmm. much as it is Fripp's. Frame by frame, that's a fantastic pop rock song. You know, frame by frame, death by drowning, in your own analysis, yeah. uh, and then you know the way his voice, his voice, Ballou's voice is so powerful, especially in this younger era. You know, he's still young; and he has his full range. It's like a rubber band when he goes stand. Step. I don't even know how you get well it's hard to get that high you have to really exert yourself to and then right after that there's what is it Matakudasai yep. I think is the next song this is a very beautiful beautiful ballad with sort of Japanese tinges and then Fripp is given you know, an excuse to like be at his play at his most sensitive Levin is doing almost kind of that almost cliche 80s you know fretless bass only boom <laughs> it's like almost Phil Collins in a way but it's still a beautiful song, and and it's Baloo's songwriting that saves it. Uh, and then you know you have side two, which gets as weird as it gets with the sheltering sky. You know, has that uh, it's an instrumental based off a of Paul Bowles book that I remember reading in high school because a cute girl gave it to me, and it's like <laughs> I really love this book, and I'm like I'm going to read this book so I can relate to you. And then I discovered this Did song. It work? I was like actually. That reminds me of the book. They did a really good job of summarizing the North African desert. Way to go, you guys. Um, the sounds from the guitar, the sort of gamelan weaving of the two guitars in and out of one another uh, changes what what King Crimson had been about uh, up until that point mm-hmm. when Fripp finally has someone to play off of, an equal, nearly equal, at least technically on his instrument, uh, he he's just so unafraid to completely dive into this, even though it's totally different from everything he had done before. It's one of the reasons why I'm so impressed by him as as a guitarist, as you know, sort of a visionary, a band leader. Is that he's completely unafraid to like just completely change up his style. He's not still going out and flogging the same old things that he was doing in 1969. These three iterations of this band couldn't be more different, and yet they're all equally valid in their own way. Um, mm-hmm. Scott. Before I move on to, to beat and three of a perfect pair, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, so I, I actually I told Jeff yesterday via email that I was listening here, and I didn't love this as much as, as he did. I know he really enjoys this this era too, but 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 I will admit I listened uh, again in prep for the show, and it's starting to grow on me a little bit. It's it's it it the, the two guitars which we haven't heard before in the band especially like frame by frame when those things interlock and then kind of fall out of lockstep. It's a really interesting sound.
Ballou is a is a front man or you know a lead singer with something to say and and with a way to say it. You know, very David Burnis Burn esque uh, vocal delivery on his you know elephant talk, as, as Dave kind of mentioned, just throwing out the the synonyms for for talk. Uh, Tony Levin and, and and his his stick instrument that that bass is a really interesting sound. Viva uh, Hun Jinji, the the two guitar attack there is very clear. The way the sound changes, and so I I I'm, I, I guess I'm 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 telling you I'm, I'm malleable here. I'm I'm willing to give it another chance in the future. Um, at the moment, I don't like it as much as that previous era, but uh, but it, but it's interesting. And 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 again, the way that the band is always changing, always morphing, and this time it's it really is a if you go from a power trio to this kind of new wavy Talking Heads esque kind of rhythm, and and it's a brand new band. I think everybody including the band themselves would agree that discipline is the best of these three albums from this era. But as much as, you know, they themselves denigrate beat and three of a perfect pair beat came out in 1982, three of a perfect pair in 1984. Um, I'm one of those people. I will defend beat in particular. I really like that album. And in particular, I just want to focus on one song in particular, which is waiting man, which to me is, is the best song Adrian Ballou ever participated in the writing of. It's not kind of like his more normal poppy songs. This is more of like a, a chant and a repetitive chant, a moan, uh, gives Fripp a real opportunity to sort of like play, you know, that rep- repetitive quasi Frippertronic sound. Although I think he's actually, he's not looping it, he's playing it himself. And then Bruford comes in with the tribal beats. And this is just, again, you have the Gamelon effect where you, Blue drops out vocally and then the guitarists just weave amongst themselves. And it's really kind of an emotionally powerful moment from a band that is always kind of drawn away from emotional moments because I think they usually try to tend to engage you more intellectually. like you know neurotica and requiem and i know that scott hates that kind of music i just absolutely <laughs> it's hate true. it but it's true <laughs> it's true well but i'm the you know, i'm wired differently i love that kind of music it's just you know you know, dissonant instrumental weirdness uh with you know occasional adrian blue blurps I, i'm into that <laughs> you know what to say um and then of course three of a perfect pair i think is the weakest of these three but i really think the title track is one of the best out right. songs it's, of it's that gonna be on my era. it's gonna be on my five jeff i think three yeah, of a perfect pair is fantastic yes yeah it's a fantastic song i don't really care for the lark's tongues part uh three on that one i really wanted to love it because it's like hey lark's tongues yeah how can it be bad but i it it, it never really made it for me um now it's it's the return of the jedi of the uh yeah (laughs) but but the thing is in there's lark's four and five (laughs) those are the prequels (laughs) 
Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. All right. So what <laughs> actually, they're, they're not that bad. But but uh, yeah. I yeah. I, I I really. So I I I'm an Adrian Ballou fan. I it's one. Of the, he's one of these artists I can't. I'm, I I just don't get why he never broke out more as pop star. Maybe mm. it's because he um you know looks like a a weird like an accountant uh and and wears you know leisure suits. I don't know what it is. And he's he's very proudly goofy, but he has he's just a a really good pop songwriter with a really clear voice that just sounds like if John Lennon had like opened up his larynx and like learned the, you know, if he did less yes. primal screaming and more, more, uh, you know, uh, mu- musical theater, he just, he's a very good singer. He's a very good pop songwriter. Uh, he has a, ser- a string of, um, pop, uh, pop and instrumental albums throughout this, this career. I mean, he just kind of just knocking this stuff out. Uh, and there's a tension in King Crimson because he, it's not like he's not like a, a Phil Collins whose solo career is blowing up and he's, you know, flying across the ocean to do two concerts for Live Aid. Um, but he clearly just wants, he has a popular vision for this stuff than Fripp does. I think the, the overlay when they, when they nail it is amazing. And it's, especially it's uh, on uh, Sleepless and Three Perfect Pair. The, the, the songs where they let his pop sense dominate, I think are, are fantastic. The, I think the instrumental stuff, the, the stuff that is, um, not as melody forward on the the second two albums. I mean, I, I listen to them flat out, and I and I, I kind of they lose me at parts. Uh, but yeah, waiting waiting man, especially just uh, Bill Bruford's kind of discovery of the uh, the electronic drum drum kit that everyone had in this era. The the the, percu- the percussion Bruford does, and he kind of after after this and after some other King Crimson, he's basically done with rock. I mean, this is him working out everything he finds interesting. Outside of jazz, uh, Bruford Bruford in this era is probably does all my my favorite drumming, which is a little bit samey. I mean, it's it, he's but I guess the rule is fewer chimes, uh, more kind of you know Peter Gabriel Conescazzi soundtrack <laughs> instruments. I love I love all that stuff. Have you ever seen the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, Dave? I have. <laughs> okay, yeah, so- one of one of many cool things ruined by uh, Ready Player One. <laughs> oh, oh no! See, I've never seen Ready Player One. That's, that's just that's so that's so unfortunate. But you know, you're talking about how you never understood why Adrian Ballou didn't make it. Uh, I suddenly, and I've never had this oh, thought before in my yeah. life. I just suddenly realized that you know what Adrian Ballou reminds me of? He reminds me of one of the red electroids who's impersonating a human being. But it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. He he's like an alien, but he he's not quite. Like he hasn't quite mastered, you know, the way that you relate to the real world. Because he, yeah, that 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 goofy gawkiness about him, and yet he's just so eager to be liked. <laughs> he, there's, yeah, completely. A, there's a puppy dog nature to his his pop instincts that, that that makes even some of the most forbidding King Crimson music from this year and in the later year really likable. Uh, and it, by the way, before we before we go on, so what happens is that of course, like every King Crimson band iteration, this one has a cell by day. It's about three years before Robert Fripp just says, screw it, we're done. He breaks them up in 1984. Again, interband tensions, difficulty with writing. But before they go, they do record one final concert that ends up getting released a lot later called Absent Lovers, which has kind of gone down, especially among King Crimson fans. It's one of the most well-loved and kind of definitive shows of their career. You mentioned it earlier in the show, Dave. It's like, you're not much of a live fan, but you do love Absent Lovers. I just wanted to know if you had any thoughts about that before we zoom forward a decade. My only 
My only pure thought is the version of Sleepless that they play live in general in this era and on this album where somehow Tony Levin just speeds speeds up double time in this bass part he plays. <laughs> uh, it's one of those things where I watch the video and I'm not... He, he like just... His hand is like hummingbird speed as he, as he plays this really amazing dance. And I, Sleepless is one of like a half dozen King Crimson songs that you can credibly kind of dance to. I, again, I've seen video evidence of people doing this to that song. experimental live um and they were cool but they basically put on concerts where they played the songs people liked and that's kind of the only time that's kind of the last time king crimson was like that um right. as we're going to get into the next section but with uh, adrian blue the only point i'd make because I, like, I like talking about him no one ever, ever talks about him is he's in this like uh, club of artists where all his actual hits are weird novelty songs i think <laughs> he has one i think his biggest hit from chart performance is called oh daddy which is him and his daughter uh, and her at like age nine or something in a very like Frank Zappa Valley role. Like I, he's brought his daughter in. He's got a goofball song that sounds nothing like the rest of his career. <laughs> so, but, but he has a couple albums like uh, Inner Revolution is like up there with any pop album I've ever heard. And I don't know who ever bought it. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It also has one of my favorite bad metaphors of all time because he, he, <laughs> he recorded the album uh, in the build-up to the first Iraq War, and he has a love song called "The War in the Gulf Between Us," <laughs> <laughs> which is it's I one of those, like I like. It's <laughs> an okay song, actually. It's a very good song, but it, it's, it was like, man, he went for it. He really, he really, he, he saw CNN that day and saw Wolf Blitzer. And he's like, damn, that's a, that's a, that's a good lyric. Oh my god, uh, that's, that's it didn't even occur to me that that had to be what it was. Okay, <laughs> yeah. yes, that's clearly based on it. Like watching, you know, Bernard. I can't even remember what his name is. Like, like Bernard, Bernard, Bernard Shaw hiding yeah. under a table in like Baghdad or something. And Arthur Kent. <laughs> oh my god, not to get too into politics, but Bernard Shaw, who's who will always be remembered as the guy who asked uh, Mike Dukakis what he'd do if Kitty was raped and murdered, and but then that also because that was that was Bernard Shaw. Because if you watch that clip. Uh, you know, if with good audio, you can see George H.W. Bush is a very nice guy shaking his head and going, oh, Bernard. <laughs> like, really, so I was just like, I'm going to win the election, but not like this. Oh. <laughs> it's like Bernard. That was a little bit over the top there. <laughs> so, okay, okay. So, 1984, King Crimson yet again for the, what, let's see, what was it, the, the 15th time broke up. And we fast forward all the way through the... Uh, rock era the revivalist era the grunge era all the way to the cd era and where are we at now it's 1994 
of all things. Woodstock 2 has happened already at this point. That's how late we have gotten into the rock era. And all of a sudden, I'm not even sure why, Robert Fripp says, you know what? It's time to reform King Crimson. And for the first time ever, he brought back every single member of the last King Crimson. Adrian Ballou, Bill Bruford, Tony Levin. Again, you know, I don't know how these guys get over the fact that Fripp just sort of said, hey, you know what? Your meal ticket, I'm canceling it. Uh, <laughs> happy trails, folks. And then he's like, hey, let's go form another band. Like, what do they think is going to happen? Like, a like, from God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That must it's be what it is. The entire band, yeah. It, it must be what it is because otherwise you don't join King Crimson expecting a long-term like you know <laughs> paycheck, right? But he reforms it, and then what he does here for extra variety is he adds another bass player and another drummer, Trey Gunn on bass and Pat Mastellato on drums. So he becomes a quote double trio. Each there, there are two guitars, two basses, and two drummers, and this is the lineup that records Thrack in 1994, 95. And as you would expect from a musty revival album from a band long past its sell-by date, Thrack is really, really terrible. Wait, no. Well, who? What am I saying? Thrack is amazingly good. Thrack is way better than it had any right to be, given the mid-90s, given you know the advent of grunge and all these trends that one might have thought would have swept away whatever it was that Fripp and his compadres were trying to do. I think Thrack is a fantastic album, and I'm, again, uh, one of the reasons why I just continually am impressed by Bob Fripp, Bob Chuckles Fripp, is that <laughs> he manages to keep my interest long after you would expect someone like him to have completely run out of things to say. I love Thrack, and I think, again, Adrian Ballou contributes so much to this album in terms of the songwriting. Uh, you know, it's, it's really good. Uh, it, it also, this diversity, I think, works. I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's fun to consider this compared to uh, another Let's Just Pile People Into Our Band, See What Happens album, which is Union by Yes, which is a legit one of the worst albums of all time. Uh, are you saying you don't like I would have waited forever no no it's not good none of that's that's very good Uh, whereas this like you have well first of all the new members are great you've got Pat Mestaletto on drums and you have Trey Gunn who Fripp meets through because um, another thing Robert Fripp is doing because he's the best person in all of rock history is uh, after breaking King Crimson starts a intensive guitar workshop called Guitar Craft where people come to a uh secluded area of his choosing and spend several days eating food uh under his orders and playing unlearning their their guitar te- uh, techniques and learning his uh which he <laughs> spins off into a couple of, of like very good i mean everyone basically sat, he, he just has learned to clone himself basically it, it's guitar it's camp like, people it's guitar <laughs> camp and it was like, good it was very good uh but right, trey gunn does that i mean trey gunn is just like a guy who this, discovers this music, does that, and Robert Fripp just anoints him. I mean, it's it's uh, it's al- almost a a prog rock fairy tale. But Gunn is a, is a bass player, and he doesn't sound at all. I mean, he 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 mostly works on the stick. He he's very rarely a traditional four string bass player. Um, does not sound at all like Tony Levin. Uh, does change the sound. So this but this album has everything from instrumental stuff like nothing that they've done before, and then a very pretty pop song called "Walking on Air," mm-hmm. which is a, um. But by Adrian Ballou, probably like the most. Uh, I, I, we mentioned Islands. We mentioned other times they've gone to just uh, here's a nice melody, enjoy. Uh, Walking on Air is um, 
like almost a, like a sting song, especially the the appearance of the Robert Fripp guitar, the flutter, the, the fluttery stuff that he's done to sound kind of alien, otherworldly and other things just sounds, you know, like a pretty wedding dance song on this. Then you have Dinosaur, which is, uh, uh, again, just like a good, goofy, straightforward rock song. But then a bunch, I mean, Vroom, from Vroom, like, um, everything they do on this uh, is very contemporary, too. This is the era of the band, I think, uh, maybe not on that tour, but this is a band that eventually is teaming up with the band Tool, uh, mm-hmm. inspired by them, and and very uh, pretty coherent with a generation of uh progressive metal and avant-garde fans who did not grow up listening to King Crimson and discover this and think it's contemporary. I mean, it's pretty impressive how much they reinvent their sound on, on this record. It, does, it doesn't feel like it misses a beat. And then on top of that, again, you've got Baloo writes these, these great songs. I love Dinosaur so much. I think Dinosaur is one of my favorite King Crimson songs of all time. And I always loved it because it felt like a weird echo of Nothing But Flowers by Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. you know, that line in, in, in Nothing But Flowers like years ago, I was an angry young man. And then, then it's like long ago and far away in a different age, I was a dumb young guy fossilized photos of my life then illustrate what easy prey I must have been and then you have this this pre-chorus that is just it's so melodically perfect it is such again Baloo's been doing this for decades he still has something like that whole standing in the sun idiot savant something like a monument into the I'm a dinosaur someone's digging my bones phrase and I was just like I was just shocked I was like hey you know what you can teach an old dog new tricks like a precursor to yeah again as you said you know sort of that you know the the heavy metal prog metal stylistics of like groups like opeth or like um 
uh, you know, tool, and it doesn't sound derivative of them in any way. I'm so impressed by the fact that Frip could bring all these people together and Basically, you know, four-sixths of them are the same people that he was playing with in 1981. One of them he's been playing with since 1972, for that matter. And they don't sound like fossils. They don't sound like dinosaurs. This is not dinosaur music in 1995. Um, and, I you know, I don't know. Again, this is probably not in Scott's wheelhouse, but I think it's fantastic. Um, actually, you know, I like it quite a bit. And I, I know our, our time window is closing. So let me say about Thrack that uh, the songs you guys have mentioned are my highlights as well. Vroom, uh, which starts things off very heavy, almost industrialized sound. You mentioned, you know, tool, uh, touring, touring with Tool. Uh, that, that certainly kind of is echoed there. Dinosaur is just a great song. Walking on Air, with Dave, which Dave mentioned, it it's almost has a Lennon-esque vocal quality from Baloo. It's a great ballad and... Uh, that backwards lead from uh, from from Fripp is there too, and I think because there's a song called Dinosaur on here and of that backwards lead guitar, I was reminded of uh, Matthew Sweet's album In Reverse, which uh, which features a whole bunch of backwards lead guitar. That's what I was thinking of when I heard Walking on Air, which is just a great ballad and a and a beautiful song. The only criticism I have is I don't love the way the drums are mic'd on this album, and I think it's very much of the era, so I can't blame them too much. Uh, but I, I would think with two drummers in this double trio, the drums would be a little more uh, prevalent and, and powerful on the album, and they're not. But the songs are very good. So short version. The band goes on tours. The band fights. The band goes on tours, and the band fights. Fripp's solution is that we all spin off and do side projects. We don't really need to worry about the side projects. We'd be here for eight hours if we tried to cover them all. Um, but what happens is that they uh, eventually Bruford and Levin leave the band for a little while. So the, fi the next album is called The Construction of Light. It's recorded in 2000, and it only has Fripp, Baloo, Gunn, and Mastelotto. I got nothing good to say about this album. This is one of the really rare King Crimson albums that I think is a failure. It doesn't have really spit up a single record, a single track that, that makes you know any sort of top five for me or any greatest hits. Uh, I've heard some of these tracks live, and I think they're improved in live performance. But beyond that, it's very, very strange in that it, it feels aimless in a way that so few King Crimson albums ever do. Dave? I agree. This is not an album they've revisited a lot uh, at live either. I, I'm I'm looking back over the track listing and trying to see when they when they've. Nah. <laughs> no, they. Um, the U.S. I, I joked, but not really, that the Blarkstones and Aspic here is is uh is is like the equivalent of the Star Wars prequels. They just they don't have like they have very few new ideas. I think um, Prozac Blues is kind of funny. Um, it's a straight blues song yeah. done Fripp style. And, of course, remember I said earlier, like, the joke is that Robert Fripp can't play the blues. So. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, but I don't like listening to it. Um, no. and yeah, nothing, nothing here is that, that great. This, is, this era, actually, the best stuff they're doing is when <laughs> – I'm just laughing because I was like, why did no other band do this? All right, it failed. Uh, is when they they literally just split the band into fragments and they're <laughs> the and they, is what they're yeah, called. It's, yeah, it's like when you start, you know, you have like a a consultant comes in at your office and you need to like break into teams to solve problems. <laughs> they literally just yeah they have the projects with a capital K in the middle of it because King Crimson, uh, <laughs> where they and they literally just actually the the recordings of that stuff are none of it's like my favorite King Crimson music, but they they clearly are. are bouncing ideas off each other in a way that's interesting but th what they're not doing is writing very good songs right 
There's a lot less rigidity in the projects. There's a lot fewer people to like, get your ideas through and like, satisfy. And so like when you're able to split off and do this, well, hey, you know, it doesn't matter that much. It's just a side gig kind of a thing. Some more creative ideas end up escaping, even though they're not as well formed. And I think, you know, what, you know, look with the construction of light, it's like it, too many cooks. Everybody's trying to be pleased. It doesn't end up working out. This is, brings us to the last album to this date. King Crimson is still touring, mind you. They have a new lineup. They brought in some of their oldest players, Mel Collins from the Islands era band. I saw Currently, a YouTube clip where they yeah. have three drummers now. Is that true? Three drummers yeah, in the touring three lineup? three drummers. Oh, yeah, they do. In the front of the stage. <laughs> yes, yes, they are. <laughs> and they're good, by the way. King Crimson is playing currently yes this year in 2018 and if you go to see them you will not be disappointed these guys are like you know like what septuagenarians right now and they can still bring it on stage because these guys know their instruments but they haven't recorded an album a studio album at least since 2003 and that final album is called the power to believe i think this is a pretty good album it's not as good as thrack it's not as bad as the construction of light but what it does have is one of my favorite king crimson songs of all time which is happy with what you have to be happy with which is oh, yeah. as, as as clever a new metal parody as has ever been written because this is done from 2002 2003 and so what's big at that point it's like limp biscuit and all that well what happened if a bunch of people who are prog rockers can do this stuff in their sleep decide to take on new metal you get a song where adrian Ballou's verse is literally and when i have some words this is the way i'm going to sing through a distortion box to make it menacing yeah <laughs> and then the chorus is literally i'm gonna have to write a chorus i'm gonna need to have a chorus and this would <laughs> seem to be as good as any other place to sing it till i'm blue in the face <laughs> it works it's so funny it's such a funny song and then it breaks into the happy with what you have to be happy with part which again you know it changes the tone and like, oh, they're, they're lyrical suddenly i love that song The rest of this album is pretty good. I like Dangerous Curves. I like the whole Facts of Life. And Level 5 is their sort of Lark's Tongues Part 5. I don't think yeah. it's – I think it's better than what Dave described it as, as a Star Wars prequel. I think it's – Oh, I'm saying the lark, the last album with the Lark's Tongues, those are the – not. I want to I want to worry this metaphor too much. I, 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 think, I, I can send anything into a bad analogy, but no, Level 5 is great. Level 5 is also – Level mean, 5 I, is I, The Force Awakens. It's, it's, it's yeah. like, oh, that's pretty good, you know? Um, but it also it, it, it has um, what because they haven't really released a studio album since then. The, their only use of this kind of skittering uh, electronic effect, which I think it sounds great, but it, it, they they actually add something new to the sound um, in, in in level five. Uh, this electronic humming that sounds uh, honestly sounds like they, there's a machine they keep trying to start and failing to start throughout throughout the track, which I right. think sounds amazing. 
And yeah, um, the uh, the power to believe this, uh, segments. I not all of them. I actually I actually have go, gone back to re-listen to those and like and like them a lot too. I mean, no, this is uh, they they kind of once they pared the band down to these elements, I think are remain in it. You've got uh, and you have you have here yet. Yeah, uh, well, the exception of you have Trey Gunn, um, who's not in the new band, but Pat Mastoletto. Um, as the drummer replacing Bill Bruford, who's who's been with the band ever since. Uh, in in general, he's just kind of like a ch- he's a little bit like choppier and, and punkier and less experimental. Uh, that I think that that is the main thing that defines the sound. And Fripp is Fripp. There's very little innovative stuff he's doing apart from that one effect. Uh, but no, they they've, they're writing some fun songs again, and they're very much em- embracing uh, the metal the the fact that they have. Uh, rebuilt a metal fan base they they i think they they're they're comfortable with that on this album but they're comfortable in a very weird al sarcastic way exactly and that's I, I they have such a weird uncomfortable like liminal existence between fan bases like an old prog dinosaur with like a new like you know prog metal new metal fan base and they're just sort of like yeah i guess this is what we're doing and might as well have some fun with it they just actually don't seem to take themselves too seriously, which is something you never thought you'd say about King Crimson. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Scott, I know you're not too familiar with these albums, but do you have any thoughts? I'm not. The only thing I, I wanted to mention is I think I, I had mentioned to you uh, pre-production, Happy With What You Have To Be Happy With it is, it is a very good song. I love the lyrics, and in my mind, of course, I make the direct connection to the, the Blues Traveler song, Hook, where you know the very literal description of trying to write a hit song um, <laughs> is very similar to Happy With What You Have To Be Happy With. Well, I guess that brings us to that time of the show. I can't believe we made it. And almost within that 90-minute, well, before we add songs, yeah, yeah. rubric that Dave asked us, now we're going to mention... I mean, if I'd stopped talking, we'd have less than 90 minutes, so it's, all my, <laughs> it's my fault. Yeah. No, it's not. It's my fault. I can't shut up because I love this band too much. But here's the place where we have to do the hard work and boil it down to two key albums and five key songs. Uh, as is our want with our guests, we ask Dave to you go first name the two key crimson two key king crimson albums and five key songs that you would recommend that people have to go find and check out for any reason you choose to to describe well i i would say the thing about king crimson and a lot of progressive rock is the stuff that's most famous is the best uh i do think uh discipline and red uh those those are going to do you and the songs the song starless uh, i I'm, I'm repeating myself if i had to add one after starless it would be waiting man and um let's see for my two albums uh red for sure i think it's the the, the immediate entry point for the band and then um i'm going i think lark's tongue and aspic i think is the second one that i would i would i would recommend the, uh, the the five songs, um, "Great Deceiver" from uh, Starless and, and Bible Black. That is probably my favorite King Crimson song. Uh, of, uh, Three of a Perfect Pair, the title track from that album is on the list. "Sailor's Tale" from from Islands. Uh, One more Red Nightmare from Red and uh, Lark's Tongue Two from uh, Lark's Tongue. And those would be my five songs. Jeff, 
Well, as I pretty much forecast at the beginning of the show, my two key albums are going to be Lark's Tongues and Aspic and USA. USA is the live album that was released kind of as a capstone to the 1972-74 era of King Crimson. Um, I love that era of the band so much that I've really kind of failed to put it into words for the last 90 minutes. Uh, I'm just hitting me now that I... We did this whole thing, and I didn't say a word about Easy Money. Easy Money is great, people. <laughs> You're going to get two versions of it if you check those two albums out. They're totally different from one another. Uh, for my five songs, I'm going to choose songs that have nothing to do with that era of the band because I want to get a little spread. So the first one I'll mention is In the Court of the Crimson King off of the, the first album. It's the title track from In the Court of the Crimson King. If you're going to get a sense of what early Prague KC was like and how it kind of invented the genre, that's as good a place to start as any. Then I'm going to fast forward all the way through to the 1980s version of the band and say Waiting Man. I agree with Dave. This is one of the greatest songs that King Crimson ever did. It's just a very powerful tune. It's a very powerful sort of demonstration of Adrian Ballou's evocative range as a vocalist and a writer. Three of a Perfect Pair, uh, which is off of uh, Three of a Perfect Pair. Uh, the title track on that one, similarly good and a more tight kind of a pop song structure, uh, showing how good Baloo was at that kind of a thing as well. Dinosaur from Thrak. Again, it may be nothing but flowers up, dressed up in drag, but I love it. I love the pre-chorus. I love the chorus of that song. I think that it's, again, shocking evidence that th- these guys weren't dinosaurs, even though they wrote about feeling like they were. And then the last one will be happy with what you have to be happy with uh, from The Power to Believe. I don't know if this is the last studio album King Crimson will ever do. You know, they're getting up there in years. They seem to be kind of content just to tour and like do like, you know, funny revivals of old songs from the uh, Islands and Lizard era <laughs> on the road. But well, they've know. had a couple of new songs on, on the live albums. They'll tuck in stuff they've played live. None of it's like mind blowing. And I realized I, I, I cut myself off. I was trying to think of something before. I had yeah. three three times left. I would go use, for them. like used a bunch, but I would I would add level level five, which I do like. I, I find myself returning to that, especially since I've seen them on tour. I'd add twenty first century schizoid man, which is super obvious. Sure. I apologize everyone for being so obvious. <laughs> uh, and, and then uh, and then Lark's tongues part one. Uh, those are the other ones I do, and I think in general I kind of like to spread over the whole uh, history of the band, but. Yeah, you can't really go wrong. But yeah, no, they've they've written some more stuff. I think it's honestly just that Frith is uh, so cynical about how one makes money in the music industry anymore. That he's like not in a hurry to make an album and tour the album. He's he's yeah, he's because old, like, he's married, gonna... he's happy, he's just he's like if it works, it works. But he's not like, and he he does no interviews. <laughs> he does like an interview every year if he feels like it. So no one is asking him when's your new album coming out. He's like, you're gonna get what you're gonna get. 
Fripp communicates with people by writing his diary and posting it on the DGM website at these days. That's basically all he yeah. does because <laughs> he doesn't have to anymore. And you're right. What's the point of making a new album when the money is in touring at this point? There's, there's, there's no record industry to speak of anymore. So might as well just you know go out there and play for audiences. That's the way to, to make a living if that's what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, King, King Crimson is still alive and well to this day despite all odds and expectations. And I'm really grateful for that, frankly, because this is one of my favorite bands of all time go see their triple drum attack which is one more drummer than uh, 38 special head so that's that's the important thing uh 50 percent better yeah <laughs> that is our uh, our political beats look at uh, at king crimson we thank our guest he is the politics or a politics reporter for the washington post please check out his uh, uh new election newsletter with the post called the trailer and his book the show that never ends the rise and fall of prog rock also on twitter at dave weigel Dave Weigel, thank you for joining us here on Political Beats. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Remember, subscribe to our feed for new episodes. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Just search for us on there or find us at nationalreview.com. Listen, share, enjoy, leave reviews, please. This is Political Beats. You can find us on Twitter too at Political underscore Beats. It has been a presentation of National Review. This has been Political Beats.